Tonight, if you turn your attention to the second chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to cover really the first 13 verses tonight. As I kind of dive into this, we now begin to see the church, the church that we are actually a part of, because it starts here, and it's continued to this day, and it's done nothing but grow from then until now. The church is larger in the world than it's ever been, in spite of all the craziness that's going on. There are more believers today than there's ever been in the history of mankind. And so the plan of God, the work of God, the power of God, is still at work, radically transforming lives and adding to his church daily them who are saved. And so as we pick up in verse 1, down through verse 13, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father God, as we have come tonight, Lord, we kind of want to be like that group gathered on that. That evening, Lord, there at Pentecost, when that day had come, gathered together in one accord, in one place, and to have your spirit move here. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come, inhabit us as the children of God, and empower us to receive from your word. We pray that you bless us with your presence, you are welcome here, and you are welcome to move amongst your people. Holy Spirit, do as you will, fill us, overflow us, anoint us, Lord, for the good works that you have. For us as a church, we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Verse 1 here in Acts chapter 2, And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place. As I said this morning, if you were with us, one of the things that I think the enemy has used is division in the church. And as the church can't get along with itself, as the church spends more time fighting with itself and amongst itself, I believe the name of the Lord is what suffers the shame. Because we've been called to be in one accord. This was the church. It was the whole church at that time, if you want to look at it that way because the Spirit was at work in them. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there then appeared on them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? 
How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthenogens, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Bergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Another said, They're full of new wine. Power from heaven. Tonight we find the coming of the power of heaven. The Holy Spirit coming upon these believers at Pentecost. The great Dr. Vance Havner, who died in 1986, much like Dwight Lyman Moody, was known for his ability to condense very complex things into very short sentences. We know them as one-liners. And about this passage, he said, we're not going to move this world by the criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. And I believe he was correct. Though we must draw attention to the things in our world that are incorrect because we can't be perceived as agreeing with the things of the world, we also have to look at our lives and know that we're totally different and it's going to be the power that is within us that's going to be doing the transformation. It's not our own power, it's his power. And if we don't have his power, if the Holy Spirit is not in us, if the Holy Spirit is not upon us, if the Holy Spirit is not flowing out of us, then we are going to have very little to offer that's going to be substantially different than this world already has to offer. Because if it's simply wisdom, it's simply knowledge, if it's great plans and processes, then anyone can come up with those things. Any human being that has the capacity to rationalize, to realize dreams, would have the potential to do that. But what happens with the early church happens to us. And what happened to the early church was something that does not happen to people without Christ. And what happened to the early church, when it happens to us, empowers us in the same way, in the same way that it empowered the early church. To do things that there is no explanation for. That cannot be taken credit for by mere human reasoning and planning. And so as the Spirit begins to move in this first century church, some additional things that I got from Dr. Havner. He said this, if you can't tell it like it is, you won't believe it like it was. Most church members live so far below God's standards that you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship with them. Some preachers ought to put more fire into their sermons, otherwise they ought to throw more sermons in the fire. Those are all things that are directly related to the work of the Spirit. You know, you try and do your best in constructing a message and doing what is necessary to be ready. 
But unless the Spirit moves, unless God has something to say, then we're just coming to hear someone speak. It has to be ignited by the Spirit of God. And when you think about the early church, and I want to draw some attention to this, you're talking largely about people that we would view today as homeless people. The disciples, most of them, the apostles, all of them, didn't own homes. They didn't have churches. They didn't possess smartphones. They couldn't Google this or that. They had no books, no library. They had nothing that we today hold dear in ministry. They didn't have PowerPoint. They didn't possess projectors. No sound systems. But they had the one thing that every ministry has to have, or all of this means nothing. They had the power of the Holy Spirit. Working both in them, and to them, and also through them, out of them. The church was relying on what we need to rely on. You know, one of the things that's constantly in in tension in any church is that between proper wisdom and knowledge and understanding, budgets and spreadsheets, tax forms, Proper financials, profit and loss statements, and balance sheets. We must have all of those things. And we absolutely do in this church. Pastor Wendell runs an incredible accounting department here, and we have wonderfully guarded financials, overseen by a wonderful member, uh, board members that, that care deeply about the health, the financial and fiscal health of this church. But I can tell you something about those men. They care more about what God thinks than about what the spreadsheet says. Because if we limit our ministry to what simply looks like it might be correct financially, then we are saying to the Holy Spirit, we do not need you. And we need the Holy Spirit. And so in some areas of life, we have to be holy risk takers. In some areas of life, we have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zones because it is there that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. When I recognize in myself that I'm not able to accomplish this and I need God to do it, that I must trust God and rest in His power and not simply in my own abilities. And so we find the Holy Spirit at work in the early church and they're waiting. And I love this. They're literally waiting for something to happen. When was the last time you waited with anticipation for God to do something in your life? When was the last time you took a holy risk? When was the last time you asked God to do something that you can't do in your own strength? When was the last time you stepped outside of your comfort zones? When was the last time you took a real step of faith? And family, it's essential. If you want to grow past infancy in your relationship with the Lord, you must wait on the Lord and you must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't wait on the Lord, if you're not expecting God to do something, 
then chances are, even if he does, you'll miss it. You're not looking for him. You're just looking for an answer. You're not looking for God. When I was sharing about our time in in Bogota this last week, totally unexpected, but completely prayed for. Totally out of the, the nowhere. It's like, where do these things come from? God, we were praying that you would do something exciting and new and fresh. Something we aren't expecting. We were praying that people would be changed and transformed and saved. But you know what? God brought the increase. God's the one that brought all those staff members from the hotel to come listen. He's the one that by the Spirit encouraged them in their spirits. Remember, that's the intersecting point between us and God. That's where we meet him as in the Spirit. He did that. And through that, they met their Savior. The Holy Spirit's going to be at work here in Acts chapter 2. It's going to take us a few studies to get through it because it's so meaty. Helps us understand the unique experiences that await us as the church. It awaited them as the church. And I want to simply encourage you. Don't simply seek what is wise. Seek the Lord in his power. Because wisdom's a great thing. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. But the work of the Spirit is an even greater thing. Verse 1, we see the church waiting, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The word Pentecost actually means 50th because it was held 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which was held on a Sunday following the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so as you look at these feasts, they were really pictures to the Jewish people, though most of them never got it. They were pictures of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What the Lord would do through his work while he was here on this earth. The remaining feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, Hanukkah as we know it, Purim, would total seven feasts. And normally, anytime you use the number seven, it's the number of completion, it's the finished work. And so these feasts, as the, as the Lord would bring the, these people into this room, and as they're waiting, they're on the feasts of first fruits, and so they're they're waiting. And since it followed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days long, which would begin on a Sunday after the Sabbath, this also would be on a Sunday. So when the early church met, it met on Sunday. It didn't meet on the Sabbath. It met on the first day of the week. One of the reasons that we to this day still meet on the first day of the week. It's obviously also the day that the Lord was risen, amen, on the first day of the week. So for us, we look at the beauty of the Jewish calendar and the feasts that are on it. They're in Leviticus 23. 
the outline of those feasts is really an outline of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What he would do. And so they're waiting. They know something's going to happen. This is a time of power. And while the Passover pictures the Lord's death as the Lamb of God, the Feast of First Fruits pictures his resurrection as the risen Son of God. And so they waited for the death of the Lamb of God, and now they're standing in the power of the risen Son of God. And interestingly enough, when Pentecost came, uh, it was represented by the priests holding up two loaves of unleavened bread. And remember when Jesus reminded us that the gospel came to the Jew first and then the Gentile? Both still having sin, in case you didn't know that, you're a sinner saved by grace. Why Paul said, a sinner of whom I am chief, speaking of his own life. You see, as, as the body of Christ, we've been joined together. You now have Jewish believers who had sin still in their life, and you had Gentile believers who still had sin in their life. But the feast of first fruit signifies that both were unified, and so the priest would wave those two loaves of bread and announce that they were now together. And whether you were of one loaf or the other, what he didn't know is he was pronouncing them united in one body by the bread of life. And so they're waiting. And I want to remind you of something. The perfect church isn't going to exist until we all go and be, be, be with the Lord. So if you're looking for a perfect church, I'll save you time. This ain't it. Because it's up there. And if you're still here, you're not going to find the perfect church. You'll be able to find faults and weaknesses and things that should change and things that could change and things that probably shouldn't change, but you think they should. The church is going to be perfect when we get home. We're a work in progress, amen? We are individually and we are corporately a work in progress. And I praise God for that. I praise God that there is change. And these believers were waiting for that change. They were waiting for that infilling to come upon them. In verse 2 it says, And suddenly there came from a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there were appearing on them tongues uh, divided as of fire. And each one sat upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I want to draw attention to the word tongues, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time tonight speaking about the gift of tongues versus what is being spoken here. Because the original language, the word that's being used here, is dialectos. And it simply means languages. And it's correctly translated in the New King James Version as language. It's not some, you know, bought a Hyundai, should have bought a Honda thing. It literally is a language, and we're going to find out why in just a moment. Though we are not cessationists, I believe the gift of tongues is still active in the church, but primarily in the form of a prayer language. It's individual for people, so they can relate to God in a very special place. So we do believe that the gift of tongues is still at work in the world, but that's not what's being said here. And it becomes very clear as you read this passage. As we study this passage, we're going to see really three things that come to us. 
First, the Spirit will come. Then the Spirit is going to baptize, come upon them. And then the Spirit will speak. And we'll see as Peter brings forth his first sermon next week that the Spirit is also going to empower, and it's absolutely magnificent. So let's look at these ministries one at a time. The Spirit comes upon them. Many people falsely believe that this is the first time that the Spirit was at work in the world, which is a sign that they actually don't know what their Bible says to some degree, and that's not meant to be critical, but the Spirit was active in Genesis 1. The Spirit was already in the world, actively overseeing creation at that time. The Holy Spirit had also worked in Old Testament history. The book of Judges or Samuel show the Spirit at work in the world. So the Holy Spirit has been around in the world since the dawn of the creation of the, the world, mankind as we would call it. And the Holy Spirit had work, been working in the life and the ministry of Jesus prior to this point. Remember, the Holy Spirit actually came upon Jesus. So the Holy Spirit as a person, because the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, not a force, not a power. The Holy Spirit is a he. And is called so throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, the triunity of God has forever been in existence exactly as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity have been at work for eternity. Otherwise, they're not God. They would have to be created at some point in time. And so the Holy Spirit working in even the life of Jesus, you remember the Spirit descended upon him when he was baptized. And so the Holy Spirit's not a new thing. But the way the Holy Spirit relates to people changed radically at Pentecost. People were indwelt from the time that Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. There was an indwelling of the Spirit. People could receive the grace of God by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had that in experience. And prior to that, they had the para experience. The Holy Spirit was at work in the world, in essence, being that one who was amongst, the one who was the discerner of right and wrong, of things that are of God and not of God. Discerner of the intent, the heart of man, overseeing creation, empowering the creation itself. But now there would be a new way that the Holy Spirit would relate to people. Not just in but upon that epi experience to overflowing to good works. Something new, something fresh, that was in addition to what happened at salvation and subsequent to what happened at salvation, so that when that happened, there was a special power that came upon those who received it. It was not the, just the power to be saved. It was the power to now go witness and work literally to give one's life if necessary, which would be a vast majority of the people in this room would have that happen to them. And so the Spirit would dwell in people, not just be alongside of them as the helper, but would literally now overflow them. And I want to give you three things that put this in order. You see, it was essential because Jesus said, another, one of the same kind, 
but different would come. Another helper. Another paraclete would come. But he had to die first. So the only way that the Holy Spirit could come is once Jesus was raised from the dead, which is now that time period. The second thing is that Jesus had to have also not just simply died, but also raised from the dead. Those two things are really separate. Jesus died. He spent three days in the grave. And then he was raised from the dead by the power of God, right? That's what Scripture says. And it was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that now is going to work in mankind. The final thing is that Jesus had to return to heaven for the Holy Spirit to be here and be the new representative, if you will, in our world. And so that is why when we say the most Jesus that anybody's going to actually see right now is the Jesus that's in you. Because we have been left now as that representative of the light of the world. Jesus is, in actuality, the light of the world. But he said to the disciples, now it's on you guys. I'll tell you what, I don't have enough power of myself to be the light of the world, okay? So I need some other power source other than Jeff. And so, praise God, we have available to us the power of the Holy Spirit to be that source of light, to be that source of wisdom, to be that source of knowledge, to be halogos, to be, to be who we need to be. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be able to fulfill our commission, which is to go into all the world and make disciples of all men, right? To make a disciple is to make someone a follower, and if we're making them a follower of Jesus, then we need to be like Jesus to do that. Can anybody in here be like Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit? I can't. Love your neighbor as yourself? No, I love me a lot more. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you? No, I'll kill them. Yeah, that can do that pretty good. No, you see, that's completely impossible. God asks us to do something that's impossible in our own spirit. So we need the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't do what's necessary to be what you've been called to be. You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you'll just look like a kind of sort of fruity religious person. Which is what happens when people don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. They get religious, right? They come up with all kinds of rules and regulations and lots of wonderful things that may look nice, but there's no power in them. That isn't in all of humanity. The reason that we're different is because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And I love that. Because it leaves me needy all the time. Remember that there were three holidays that are that are pictured here because you you have passover first fruits and pentecost all within an eight day span and it's interesting to me because there are three startling signs that accompany the spirit you have the sound of a rushing wind you have the tongues of fire and you have believers praising god in various languages and so the word here that spirit you need to identify it because it's important in the hebrew language it would have been ruach It would have been translated wind. In the Greek, it would have been pneuma. But it was the sound 
It wasn't something they felt, it was something they heard. It was a sound like the mighty rushing wind. I don't know exactly what they heard, but I know this. They heard it. And it was real to them. And when they heard that sound, they began to praise the Lord. As we get into this discussion a little bit here in a few moments on what was being said here, I want to tell you that the human tongue, James says, can be lit on fire by two sources, either by heaven or hell. And you can tell which is which by what is accomplished through how it's lit on fire. And if it begins to praise God and bring glory and honor to the Lord, and his name is lifted up and he is exalted, then it's more than likely been lit on fire by heaven. But if it creates division and becomes a distinction whereby you can receive fellowship, then I can tell you it's not of God. So any church that tells you you must speak in tongues in order to be in fellowship with them is not of God. Scripture says so. And we'll get to it in just a little bit. Anyone that says you need to speak in tongues to be in leadership is absolutely not accurately portraying what the Word of God says. Because the Apostle Paul himself downplays that specific gift and in fact writes nearly an entire chapter on the matter, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, which we'll look at in a few moments. The gift of tongues is a wonderful gift. But that's not even what's been talked about here. Because the word that's used is not glossolalia. It is, in fact, dialectos, which is simply human language. It's dialects of people. And the reason that we know that is the way it's described. We've already seen the Spirit baptize these believers. In other words, come upon them in a very special way to submerge them. And it's figurative in that sense that it's an overflowing. And so we know that they have something different going on in their lives. But it's not so different that it becomes completely out of control, chaotic, and weird. It's different in that they could not do it themselves. Now I can tell you, having just returned from Colombia, my Spanish is terrible. Yo no sabe mucho español. You see, I can speak a little bit of Spanish, but when I start carrying on full conversations with people, it's from God. Because it's not coming from up here because it's not locked in there yet. I have to admit, I kind of got, you know, I just need to do this better, so I need to study. So I want to give God something to work with the next time I go. So I'm going to study. But the Spirit fills people, and the Spirit does things that we can't do in and of ourselves. And that infilling, and they were all filled, verse 4 says, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that word tongues there is actually the word that means languages. We're not exhorted to seek some bizarre, strange thing. We're exhorted to be filled with the Spirit so that God can use us in miraculous ways. It doesn't mean it's going to be unintelligible gibberish. It simply means that God wants to do things in our lives for which we cannot take credit. And sometimes that may be something like what happens to these guys. 
we need to be open to the Spirit working. And so there are distinct experiences that happen to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pick up in verse 5 and get to this. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Starting to give you some clues right now. From every nation under heaven. Now, if you've ever been in a multilingual situation, I've been translated into multiple languages at once. It's a little chaotic, especially if you can hear the translators in your head. And you've got, you know, you've got Serbian over here, and you've got German over here, and I'm speaking in English, and, and all kinds. But here's the good thing. If you have your translator someplace, and they're sitting uh, away from you, and you can't hear them, and they're simply translating into another language, which goes into an earpiece that somebody else is wearing, then it's extremely beneficial, because that person hears you in, your own, in their own language. I like to call this the Holy Spirit translation service. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because, and here it is, everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one, Look, are not all these hicks from the sticks of Galilee? Remember, we know about the disciples. They were unlearned men, right, for the most part. They were fishermen. This was not the cream of the crop. These were not college graduates. These were not people who went to the language school, you know, up in Central California for the Central Intelligence Agency. These were people who had very little training whatsoever other than they spent time with Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that education you can no longer purchase. not available. Are not these who speak Galileans? They don't even speak proper Hebrew. They probably were speaking Aramaic. And it's interesting to me that they don't actually mention that. But that was the language common at the time in the region of Palestine as defined by the Romans. How is it that we hear each in our own language? And so that word, same word, by the way, that's translated tongues, is translated now language correctly. And the reason that tongue was used is we still use it in the same way. His native tongue is... Ich kann Deutsch sprechen, ja? So somebody would say, you know, yes, I speak a little German. Eu falo português. I can speak a little Portuguese. You see, they would have heard in their own language in which they were born. Then, just in case you were going to get off on this a little bit, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, so you have people from generally from the east of Jerusalem, Mesopotamia, also the east, Judea would have been the surrounding hills, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, to the north. You you would have gotten the Phrygians who were up in modern-day Turkey and Pamphylia, same area, Egypt to the south. You see, this is all of the areas surrounding Jerusalem. There were people that came from pretty much anywhere and everywhere that are listening to these non-learned Galileans speak in their own native tongue. How much good do you think it would have done for them to sit there and listen to Aramaic when their native language was Egyptian? 
that had been going. It, it's kind of like when, when I listen to Latin Mass. I'm like, I don't, I don't speak Latin. It's a dead language. Nobody actually speaks Latin anymore, for the most part. I won't get anything out of it unless the Holy Spirit tells me what somebody's saying. Parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, that's another way of saying people who aren't too terribly smart, and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in our own back-to-tongues. Their own native tongue, their own native dialect, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Another said, mockingly, they're drunk. They're bombed and babbling. They're completely not with it right now. Luke names here, and I want you to look at you just underline them, count them, put a little mark by them. 15 different languages, geographical locations that at the time had their own language. Now, if you've ever watched a session of the UN, you know why this passage is important. Because you know what? You'll see every one of them, for the most part, with a little earpiece in. Because whoever's speaking is speaking in their native tongue, and everyone who's listening is hearing in their native tongue. So if one guy gets up and he's speaking some dialect that none of the rest of the people understand, then nobody's going to get anything out of it. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit begins to translate this for these people. The Spirit is just working in the lives, baptizing them, moving in their lives, filling them. And so it would be natural if the Holy Spirit's going to fill them and the Holy Spirit's going to use them and the Holy Spirit's going to work through them and the Holy Spirit's going to empower them and the Holy Spirit's going to use them to witness to the world. Don't you think they all need to have the same message? That's why the church in the world very, very often is so messed up. It's because we don't send a unified message. You've got one group saying this and another group saying that. You need to just stick to what the Word says. Preach that message. I think there are some ways that we can understand this. And probably those of you that know your Bibles, you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 11. That was when God looks at mankind and says, Look, these guys are getting so bright that they're going to attempt to build a tower to reach me and try and be, take my place. And so what does God do to take care of it? He confuses their language, right? And he sends them off to the four corners of the world, figuratively speaking. The world is not flat. That isn't what I just said. In other words, every direction, every ordinal direction, God sends people everywhere. And he confuses their language. So the Medes can no longer talk to the Persians, and the Persians can't talk to the Elamites, and the Elamites can't talk to the people in Pergia, and the Cretans couldn't talk to the Arabs, and the Egyptians couldn't talk to the Jews. Nobody could talk to anybody because what they were doing was conspiring, in essence, against God to replace him. So God says, all right, if you're going to act like that, I'm going to take away your cumulative power by confusing your language. So if you were God and you now wanted to send a unified message to the entire world because for God so loved the 
he gave his only begotten son. Amen? When he said world, he used the, the, phrase, the word cosmos. He's talking about anyone who's ever lived, all who have ever lived. And now, so if you're God and you have purposely confused the languages of mankind, and you want to send a unified message to that mankind whom you have confused their language so that they don't work together and try and factor every, you out of the equation in everyone's lives, there's something you need to take care of. And that's the confusion that exists in language. So what does God do? He sends a unified message to all these dignitaries who represent then pretty much the known world because it would have gone to Rome, most powerful, powerful military force on earth, ruling people of the time. Goes there. Goes to the Egyptians, the second most powerful. It goes to the Greeks. They were the ones before the Romans. And everyone in between. And so by the Holy Spirit, God sends the same message to all 15 of these language groups. And here's a unique thing. What they represent is the totality of all of the known languages that we have in the world today. Every one of them is a subgroup of these 15. So if you take these 15 languages, it's from these 15 that all of the rest exist. God's kind of smart. Maybe you think he knows what he's doing. Because he wants the gospel to go into all of the world. And he wants the church to go into all of the world. So he empowers all of the world with the same message. They all hear in their own language. They're not all babbling in a language that none of them can understand. They are speaking in their own language. Because at Babel, they were all able to understand each other. And now, God simply says, okay, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to give you another shot, another go around at this, if you will. And I think it's just beautiful the way that the Lord works through the people that were there at the time. Because God wants to speak to everyone. God wants us to go into all of the world. That's why he says, go into all the world. Amen? Matthew 28, isn't the Great Commission, go into all of the world? So when God says all, he means all. Now, if he had been giving them the gift of some ecstatic language, some prayer language, something that was unique for the person, that would not have been accomplished. They would have all been going, well, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it sounded beautiful. It was something, and it sounded like there was something going on, but I don't have any idea what the message is. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You know chapter 13. The greatest of all the spiritual gifts is love. And without it, you are a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. Not good. Look what follows in chapter 14. Pursue love. And the greatest of these gifts is love. So you're to pursue that and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, why would the Apostle Paul say that? Chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and unity and that diversity and having one body and all those kind of things. And he names some of these things that are the gifts that we might call spiritual gifts. But he says, for he who speaks in a tongue, speaking of a ecstatic language, 
a heavenly language, a spiritual language, does not speak to men, but to God. So if, in fact, God had given them the gift of tongues, as people often call it, and they began to speak in unintelligible speech, how much do you think they would have been able to edify and keep one another accountable and centered on the actual message which they were going to be sent to give? Apostle Paul breaks this down for us. For no one understands him. Is that clear enough for you? The gift of tongues is a personal gift, as a general rule. However, in the Spirit, he speaks in mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation to comfort men. And he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless he indeed is interpreted that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge, prophesying or by teaching? And so he begins to lay out in this chapter, and I'm not going to read it all to you. You can check in on it a little bit later. But he says in verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray in the Spirit. So he's saying this gift that's given to you, I'll pray in the Spirit. But I'll also pray with understanding. And I will sing in the Spirit. But I'll also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen? In other words, how will the person sitting next to you have any idea of what's going on unless you're speaking in a language that that person can understand? It doesn't do them any good. And at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand... What do you say? Well, we're talking to God. We gather together. It's supposed to be for the mutual edification of the body of Christ. If it's something between you and God, then do it between you and God. And otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies that place say amen, he says. For indeed, give thanks well. But I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's pretty plain. So regarding the gift of tongues, that's why Paul said, unless it's interpreted in church, you're not supposed to use it publicly. Because it just confuses people. They can't say amen to it. They don't have any idea what's being said. And so that's why we don't use it publicly in this church. If God gives you the gift of tongues, and it's your private prayer language between you and God, it says here that it edifies you. It builds you up. It's between you and God. But if somebody else hears you doing that, Paul says, not Jeff, Paul says, I'm probably not going to have a clue what's going on. So it's not going to build up the church. We're here to build up the church of God. 
So be careful how you get exercise the gift of tongues. If it's causing confusion, it's not of the Lord. If it creates a class system, it's not of the Lord. If it becomes a test for fellowship, it's not of God. Because nowhere here does it say that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. Not in this entire book. And in fact, it is downplayed by the Apostle Paul. So much so that he said, I'd rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. Amen? The reason I'm saying that is people get confused. As I've shared with you before, those in Pentecostal churches think that we're Baptists. And Baptists think we're Pentecostals. Bottom line is, we're neither. We're just Jesus followers who love the Lord and his word and try and do as best we can to do what it says. So do we believe that God gave the gift of tongues to man? Yes, of course. Do we believe that people still exercise that gift occasionally? Yes. And I believe primarily as a prayer language between you and God. But it's not a test of fellowship in this church. I can tell you in all of my better part of a quarter of a century with Pastor Chuck, not once, ever, never did I hear him pray in tongues or speak in tongues. So the founder of the movement didn't do it that often. He told me that he did pray in tongues. So be careful how you exercise the gift of tongues. In this place, they were given the gift of language so that the gospel could be spread to the entire world. And that's a pretty powerful work of the Holy Spirit to take some unlearned guys, give them a message that's going to transform the world, and then have everyone interpret what was said in their own native tongue. What a beautiful thing that would have been. Everybody walking away, you can hear the, the two people from Phrygia going, man, did you hear Nick? He said that it's a, the gospel of grace, and we're saved by grace and through faith. You know, the, Can you imagine? The Elamites hearing the same thing as the Persians. And the Persians hearing the same thing as the Egyptians. All because they heard in their own language. Beautiful picture of how the church gets its start. Next time we're going to pick up with the Apostle Peter preaching the most amazing sermon. In so few words, it's going to boggle your mind what happens with the handful of words that are spoken through the Apostle Peter, which we'll get to next time. Bring the worship team back up. Here on Sunday nights, on the final Sunday night of the month, we always have an opportunity now for you to partake at the communion table. Perhaps you were not with us today on our morning services where we all had an opportunity to do that. So we want to make sure that you have an opportunity at least once a month to come to the table of the Lord. While the worship team is coming back up, let me explain to you a couple of things. And I do this so that you are aware. If you're here with us and you do not know the Lord, then that communion table is not for you. That is a believer's supper. We are remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
We're remembering the sacrifice that he made on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. And in fact, Paul warned the church at Corinth to not partake in an unworthy manner. So please don't go out of religious obligation, for there is a warning there in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, don't take in an unworthy manner, for in doing so you shame the blood, the body of Christ. Please refrain from going to the communion table if you don't know Jesus. Now, having given that warning, you can accept Jesus Christ tonight. Because it's very simple. Scripture says, he that believes on his name will be saved. Here's his name. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is God incarnate in human flesh. He came to this earth as the God-man, Emmanuel. He lived a sinless life for 32 and a half years on this earth. He was put to death. That death was not because of anything that he did, but because of everything that you have ever done and will do, and me too, and everyone who's ever lived. And when he died, Father God in heaven looked at his sacrifice and said, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased and accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, his shed blood, for Scripture declares all the way from the book of Leviticus till today that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And so to believe on his name is to believe that Jesus Christ is all of those things. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he did so by dying on Calvary's cross and paying the price for your sin so that you can simply Invite him into your heart and be saved by grace and through faith. And that faith is a gift so that you can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight and you don't know him and you'd like to participate at the communion table celebrating what Christ did on that cross, it's as simple as inviting him into your heart right now. And so I'm going to ask that the lights be lowered. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And as you stand, I'm simply going to ask a simple question. If you're here tonight, you've never received Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, and you want to make tonight, that night, you want to say yes to what Jesus Christ did for you, then I'm simply going to ask you where you're standing right now, every eye closed, every head bowed. If that's you and you'd like to know Jesus tonight, just simply slip your hand up in the air so I can see it. I'm going to have you pray right where you're at. That's you. Anyone at all here tonight that would like to receive Christ as their Lord? I'm going to wait a couple of moments just to be sure. I don't want anybody to not have the opportunity. Another minute. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. And then as you would like to, you can go to the tables and take communion. We're going to have some pastors come forward for a time of prayer. If you need to be prayed for, for some area of your life, if you need to get a burden off your shoulders, you're carrying something around that's too heavy for you, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and we are to cast our cares upon him, for he cares for us. He is a beautiful Savior, a wonderful God. He is mighty in the heavens. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. And we thank you for your grace, Lord, which is amazing. And we pray that as we 
now worship for a time and as we spend some time at the communion table. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to this world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that your body was broken for us. The chastisement of our peace was put upon you that we might have your righteousness, as the Apostle Paul said, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us as the ungodly ones. We thank you that we simply can open the door and you will come in and sup. And no hands have been raised, so we either believe that all are saved in this place or that maybe there's someone waiting. And so for that one who is waiting, Holy Spirit, fall afresh upon them. Pray that the truth of your gospel message would be spoken into their hearts and they would receive your grace even tonight. Lord, you can do that in the quietness of their hearts. And for those prayer needs, Lord, those things that have come and have weighted down your people. God, what an amazing thing it is that we can cast our cares on you for you care for us. Lord, to think that the God who created us who looks at every sparrow that drops, Lord, their short lifespan, and says about us, are we not more than these? How the lilies of the field are adorned, and yet we're more precious to you than flowers. And so, God, we thank you for the work of your Spirit in this world. and pray that you would set us ablaze, Lord, set us on fire for your kingdom purposes. We thank you for this evening. We pray these things in the wonderful, the majestic, the only name whereby men may be saved. The name Jesus. Amen.